good to be with you again this morning. I've actually, I feel like I've seen some new faces. Um, I don't know. Brendan brought a couple of friends. Great for him. Are you Brendan's girlfriend? All right. How about that? Brendan's not in here. That's great. Otherwise, I probably would never preach here again because he'd want to kill me. (laughs) Uh, Awesome. Well, um, on a serious note, uh, and I don't know if, if Brendan brought this up last week or not, but uh, an untimely death of a world-renowned athlete, Kobe Bryant, happened two weeks ago on this day. Um, I found out at lunch. Now, I didn't know Kobe Bryant personally, never met the guy, but I followed his career from age 10 up until he retired. He played 20 years in the NBA. Um, A famous athlete, uh, uh, world-renowned just person. A great guy from, from what I've seen through, throughout the years. Not a perfect person, but had a great family and, and lost his daughter as well. Uh, seven other people, in fact, died in a helicopter crash two weeks ago. An untimely death. Unexpected. Gut-wrenching news for many people. I was at lunch, and it really, it was heartbreaking. I didn't know him, but I followed his career. So I felt like I, know, I knew him from afar, and, and I, I shed some tears. It was hard. And it, it made me start thinking about events like that. If you go back to last year, we had two major mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, El Paso, Texas. Many people lost their lives. Unexpected. I was reading an article just the other day about this father, 36-year-old man, wrestling with his 4-year-old son, just play wrestling. And he had a gun in his pocket, and it went off, and it killed him. The kind of news that is gut-wrenching, the kind of news that breaks your heart, the kind of news that puts you and I in a position sometimes where we think, what do we do when we really don't know what to do, when our heart becomes broken? If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. You know, Nehemiah he received some pretty gut-wrenching news as well. And a little backstory on Nehemiah, he is the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, in Persia. So Nehemiah's job was to drink the wine and eat the food before the king did. And so if Nehemiah was good and the wine was good and there was no complications with that, the king would look at Nehemiah, I imagine, and Nehemiah would give him a thumbs up. You're good to go. But if Nehemiah started to turn another color, perhaps Nehemiah started choking, or if he just looked ill in any way, I think uh, the king, Artaxerxes, would have been like, you know what, I think I'm good. I'm not going to be drinking tonight. I'm not going to be having my dinner tonight. And so that was Nehemiah's job. He was the cupbearer to the king. He lived in the king's palace. It was really a prestigious job, a daring job. but an important job. And so we read about this guy, Nehemiah. Um, his story begins with him receiving some pretty horrible news, devastating news from Nehemiah's hometown. Nehemiah was a displaced Jew. He was a, a refugee, an immigrant living in a foreign country in Persia. Jerusalem was a, a special place for a guy like Nehemiah. It was his home. It was where his ancestors were from. Jerusalem was the uh, capital city of their religious life. And so Nehemiah receives this news, and it's like a body blow. 
It's the kind of news that might knock you out. And I wonder if this has happened to you, perhaps even recently. You've gotten a phone call from a relative or a friend, and they have described to you some pretty devastating news, horrible news, and you suddenly seem sick. Maybe it's hard to breathe because you can't believe it. It's the kind of news that you really wish wasn't true, but the the reality is it's, it's a part of our world. We can't escape devastating news. And so we're going to start the beginning of Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah 1, starting in verse 2. Before we do that, I want to pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time together. God, we know and we trust that your spirit is alive and moving in this room. And so, Father, we're asking for something supernatural to be done in the lives of people in this room. God, we trust you and we thank you and we praise you for being almighty God who is with and for his people. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Nehemiah 1, starting in verse 2. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah, this is where the place of Jerusalem was, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And so the people... The Jewish people who, who were once exiles, the nation of, of, of Israel, has been allowed to go back to their home for some time now, back to their homeland. But everything's been destroyed. It's now a pile of rubble, and it's heartbreaking. And so for Nehemiah, he receives this tragic news. But he's a thousand miles away. What could he possibly do? And so there's these situations that happen in our lives when we receive these, you know, this disturbing, uh, devastating, horrific news, and we think, what do we do when we don't really know what to do? What do we do when our heart breaks, when we receive that diagnosis? Maybe when you lose a friend or a family member or a child even. Everything seems fine, and it was fine, but in a moment, everything changes and your world turns upside down. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And I think there's a few things in the story of Nehemiah that help us to deal with devastating news, the kind of news that crushes us, that could potentially lead us to despair, and could even potentially lead us down a path that we don't really want to go down. What do we do when we don't know what to do? I think Nehemiah shows us. I think there's several different responses that we can have when we receive the worst of all news. Verse 4, Nehemiah says, or the Bible says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned. For some days I mourned. The first response is, when you receive gut-wrenching news, you sit down and you cry. Oftentimes, when we receive horrible news, the kind of news that turns our world upside down. It's, it's common for other people who, by, in, in all honesty, want to help us. They, they want to come alongside us. They want to support us. They want to be that person or those people, and that's good. But oftentimes, people say, when we're dealing with tragedy, God's good. God's got this. You can trust God. He's a good God. He's a good and loving Father. He works in mysterious ways. You can trust him. And 
those things might be true, but sometimes that's not what we want to hear. You know, I have personally been to, I think, less than five funerals in my entire life. I'll be 33 in April. I haven't lost anyone close to me uh, that I can think of. All my grandparents are still alive. I have not personally dealt with death. I get a a call from a friend, um, I think a few years ago, who was just, who lost somebody. And because they lost somebody close to them, this person was in tears, just crying, hysterical. And not only that, but it made them think of other people that they had lost in recent past. This person could barely even speak. They were so torn up. Their heart was broken. And I'm on the other end of this phone, not knowing what to say. I don't know what it's like to lose someone close to me. What could I possibly offer as a, as a, as a new baby Christian, someone who is desiring to go into ministry, I felt like I was in a position where I had to say something, but I just didn't know what to say. I literally had no words, and I said something that I wish I never would have said. They're in a better place. They're in a better place. Now, although that might be true, it's not always the best thing to say to someone. It's not always the best thing to say to someone. It just wasn't the right thing at the right time for me to say. And I realized, based on that story, that it's okay to be silent. Because there's a time for mourning. And I learned to respect that. There's a time for mourning, and there's a time for tears, and there's a time for weeping, and there's a time for crying. And we don't have to put on this facade and act like we're tough and stronger than we really are. Act as if everything's under control, when the reality is it's not. In the book of Acts, when the early church was getting started, thousands of people were getting saved and believing in the gospel. The church was advancing in numbers. People were getting saved. Miraculous signs and wonders were occurring in the early church. But still, this man named Stephen, he was the first Christian who was martyred and killed for believing in the risen Jesus Christ. And he was martyred, this this horrible death. And although the church was advancing and and all seemed good and and, and people were getting saved and all those things, they still mourned and they still cried. Look what it says in Acts 8, verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. They mourned deeply for him. Like despite the growth and the success of the early church, despite these Christians knowing and experiencing and seeing the power of Almighty God at work, They still mourned, and they still cried, and they still had tears. They still took time to think about their brother. And you know why? It's because they're human. And it's because we're human. It's the normal thing to do in a situation like that, to mourn and to cry and to spend time doing those things. If you look at the Bible in the New Testament, the same thing happened with Jesus. Jesus did the same thing when his good friend Lazarus died. He cried. He was deeply saddened. In John 11, verse 35, the Bible says Jesus wept. That's all it says. That's the whole verse. Jesus wept. And when Jesus weeps, we get a glimpse of how God feels over our afflictions and our grief and our loss. It breaks his heart and it makes him cry. Jesus Christ wept. I often think that God gave this verse Jesus wept because he really wanted to encourage his people to meditate and remember scripture. 
Like God's word says for us to hide his word in our hearts, to meditate on it day and night. And I often think how hilarious it would have been for God to say, you know what, I really want to push for my people to meditate on my word. I'm going to give them a verse that they will have no problem remembering. I'm going to cause Jesus' friend Lazarus to die, and it's going to cause him to cry, and my people are going to memorize my word. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He cried. His heart was broken. And so when tragedy strikes, and you and I receive such horrible news, whether it's personal or not, when something breaks our hearts, and we begin to ask this question, what do we do when we really don't know what to do? You sit down, and you take a moment, and you weep because you're a human being. But that's not all. Nehemiah would go on. The second response that we can have is, you kneel down to pray. You kneel down to pray. We're going to pick up in verse 4. So, so Nehemiah is mourning. He's weeping. And then it says, and then I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time to go into fasting, but basically fasting was a prominent action taken by God's people throughout their history. They would keep themselves from eating food. The the very thing that sustained them, the very thing that they needed, they would put off. And in place of that, they would pray. It was a time of complete focus on God and his word, a time for just God. And so in other words, God, you're the most important thing in my life right now, even more important than what my body really needs, food. I'm going to lay that aside, and I'm going to pursue you in prayer and fasting. So Nehemiah, he kneels down, and he prays, and he fasts with intense focus on God, pleading for God's mercy upon his people, pleading for God to intervene in a moment of crisis and devastating news. Nehemiah is interjecting on behalf of his people, crying out to God, acknowledging that he is sovereign over all things. Look what he says, O Lord God of heaven, Nehemiah says. Nehemiah is acknowledging that this this isn't just any God. This is Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, the God of his ancestors. This is the God who is presently with his people. Nehemiah says, my God is the I am God of Israel, the covenant-making, promise-keeping God of his ancestors, the one who is greatly concerned for his people, the God who promised long ago to never leave his people, to never forsake his people. Nehemiah is pleading in prayer with this God. Is this the God that we plead with in prayer? When tragedy strikes, when things occur in our world, whether it's personal or not, that break our heart, are we going to prayer pleading with the great and awesome God of the Bible? The one who has authority over all things. The one who has authority not only in heaven, but in our world. God is absolutely concerned with the things that break your heart. He is absolutely concerned with the things that break our hearts. And if we believe this, we should pray like it. Pleading on our knees for this God, the I am who I am God. 
and know that he'll hear our cries and invest in our future, just like he does Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah is praying. He's pleading with God. And he's asking for God's help. And look what he says again in verse 6. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Then if you were to scroll down to verse 11, he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man is King Artaxerxes. It's a hard name to say. But notice something here. Nehemiah doesn't just throw up a Hail Mary. This isn't, this isn't a flare prayer. It's not a quick one-and-done prayer. Go about the rest of your day or go about the rest of your life. You'll see in chapter 2, the Bible tells us that Nehemiah prayed for four months. Four months, Nehemiah fasted. Four months, Nehemiah prayed. Four months, Nehemiah pursued God in intense prayer. He acknowledged that God was more important than anything else in his life. And his trust in God shows us by his constant prayer to God how much God really mattered to him. And then something happened. God hears the prayers and cries of Nehemiah, and he answers him. Nehemiah now finds himself in the presence of the king, and the king takes interest in Nehemiah's concerns and his pleads for his people. And he grants him permission to go all the way home. Why would he do that? Artaxerxes is not Jewish. He's never been to Jerusalem. What does he care about that place? What's interesting about this is the king actually stopped the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem before. If you were to go back in Ezra, he says, Jerusalem has indeed been a hotbed of insurrection against many kings. In fact, rebellion and revolt are normal there. That city must not be rebuilt except at my express command. And so this man, Nehemiah, who, by the way, he's not a pastor or a priest. He's not a president or a king. He had no social media presence, no followers on Twitter. This guy was a nobody. An ordinary person, just like you and me. But he believed. Nehemiah had faith in the sovereignty of God. And he believed that God had the authority in the heavens and on the earth to will anything he wanted. He believed that God could will anything that he wanted. And by that, God could change the mind of even the most powerful men on the planet. And so what changed? Nehemiah prayed. And God answered his prayer. So Nehemiah's life would actually forever change from that moment on. In fact, the, traje the trajectory of a whole nation would change. What seemed like an audacious request on Nehemiah's part to go and rebuild this city that he loved, an impossible task, they would actually rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in an astounding 52 days. A city is rebuilt and a nation is reborn because Nehemiah prayed. God answered his prayers. What first started out as a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, devastating news that comes Nehemiah's way, the kind of news that could potentially turn people away from God, was the very thing that drew Nehemiah to God. So Nehemiah pursued God in prayer, and things changed. So let me ask you, 
what breaks your heart. Maybe it's illiteracy. You have a burden for people who can't read. Global poverty. Children dying because of a lack of basic nutrition or clean water. Maybe it's those of you who or those who are controlled by substance abuse, alcohol, drugs. You want them to be free, and you pray for that. Maybe it's those who have been sex trafficked, sexually abused, sold into sex slavery. This is not only happening all over the world. This is happening in our own country. Or maybe it's your own family or friends or neighbors who are far from God, and you want them to know Christ, your Christ. You want them to experience his kindness and his love and his grace and his mercy and his power. What moves you? What wrecks you? What, what brings you to knees and causes you to cry and to weep? You want to know what breaks my heart? It's unreached peoples. There are, well, actually the Joshua Project, which, by the way, is an incredible resource. is a website you can go to. The Joshua Project estimates that there are just over 17,000 people groups in the world that make up roughly about 7.6 billion people on the earth. And they say that there's just over 7,000 people groups who are unreached or unengaged in the gospel. Roughly 3 billion people on the earth have never even heard of Jesus, have never been engaged with the gospel. They have no scripture in their native tongue or in their language. They don't know who Jesus is. Three billion people on the earth don't know your Jesus. And that breaks my heart. And things like that, and the list goes on and on and on of the things that break our hearts. A a list like that, a a never-ending list perhaps, is worthy of our prayer. We should be praying. There's a quote I came across from Andy Stanley. He says this, We see what we're looking for. We often miss what we don't expect to see. Prayer keeps us, keeps us looking. Prayer keeps the burden fresh. It keeps our eyes and hearts in expectant mode. Prayer doesn't force God's hand, but it keeps us on the lookout for his intervention. Prayer sensitizes us to subtle changes in the landscape of our circumstances. Praying almost ensures we won't miss opportunities God brings our way. Looking for something doesn't necessarily mean you will find it, but if but it sure increases the odds of seeing it if it is there to be seen. So Andy Stanley gives that quote. But the, the, the question still remains, what do we do when we don't know what to do? Here's an example, the coronavirus. I mean, is it actually true what's happening? Many say that the numbers that they're giving us aren't even accurate. They're not truthful numbers. I saw this picture someone sent me on the very right. You can hardly see it, but that says there's 24,000 deaths that have occurred. Hardly anybody's getting cured. Now, I don't know if those are accurate numbers or not, but what I think is that the the information we're receiving isn't accurate. I don't think it's truthful. So this coronavirus is going, is spreading. People are dying. What do we do when you have no idea what to do? Things like this. You do what Nehemiah does. We fall on our knees and we plead for God's mercy on the church and on people. We ask God for provision and protection. 
We ask for divine intervention, for clarity, for direction. We simply pray. Spending time in constant prayer with God. This is what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah trusted that God Almighty was in control, and we can do the same thing. And so Nehemiah would continue on in his prayer in verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, had committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So here's the third thing. Anytime we go into prayer, our third response should be, you repent of your sin. You repent of your sin. This is often a missed part of the Christian life, acknowledging and repenting of our sins. We back away from this kind of thing sometimes, don't we? See, Nehemiah, it seems he's kind of taking a turn here. First, he's pleading for God's mercy, and then he's repenting of sins. But Nehemiah does something. He brings up an important aspect of a person who lives for God. Like throughout Israelite history, the people of God constantly, constantly turned their back on God. They constantly chose to pursue other idols and worship other little g gods, not him. And each time, God would remove his covering over his people and let enemy nations attack. And so the nation of Israel would often become greatly oppressed and taken into captivity. And usually what happened is they would come back and cry out to God once more, God, help us. Where are you, God? So Nehemiah recounts the history of his people. He recognizes what's happened, and he repents of that history, that ongoing cycle of sin and rebellion against their God. And he prays, and he repents, not only on behalf of his nation, but on behalf of himself and his family. And he prays for the important and urgent things around him. But he still acknowledges the iniquities within himself and his people and says, God, we've sinned against you. We acknowledge it. We know it. We know we did wrong. But we're pleading for your mercy. We're asking for your help. Forgive us. We know we've messed up. And so the good news for us today is that we are under a new covenant. The Messiah has come. A Savior has been born. Jesus lived, died, and resurrected from the dead. And we no longer are under the law. We are under grace. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Romans 10.9 says, the Apostle Paul, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're in this room, you've made a decision to follow Jesus. You know in your heart that you were a sinner before a holy God, in need of saving. And you repented of your sin and turned to God. God saves you through his son, Jesus Christ. And you're no longer under the law, but grace. You're no longer a slave to sin, but free from sin. Sin no longer has mastery over you. And oftentimes we think, because we're Christians, it's okay to sin from time to time. You know, I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm in the church. A little sin here or there, it's, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's certainly not going to destroy the church. But that's where you're wrong. Sin has major implications in our lives. And it impacts God's purposes for our lives. So flee from it. Don't live in it. Don't let the enemy have a foothold in your life. Flee from the devil, and he will flee from you. That's God's word. 
Jesus wants to be first in your life. And I think he earned that right when you made a decision to follow him and to trust him with your eternity. And each time you or I sin, we're saying God isn't enough to fulfill our needs. God isn't the primary focus in our lives. Sin is. So run from it and let God be first in your life. The fourth response that we can have when tragedy strikes, when we get gut-wrenching, devastating news, the fourth response is we do what Nehemiah did. You trust in the faithfulness of God. You trust in the faithfulness of God. He goes on, verse 8, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the farthest or in the, at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from, from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Nehemiah again recounts events from the past, acknowledging God's presence among his people. He remembers God rescuing his people out of Egypt, delivering them from slavery and bondage. Nehemiah recounts the, the miraculous signs and the wonders that God did, parting the Red Sea, speaking through a burning bush. Nehemiah knows what God did. He, he knows what he, God's done. And he believes that he can do it again. That's why he's pleading for God's mercy. And he trusts, Nehemiah trusts that God is faithful to his word and to his promises from years past. And in so, Nehemiah says this in verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He continues to ask for God's help. Because Nehemiah believes that God is faithful to his word. Nehemiah knew who God was. He knew, Joshua 1.5, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Nehemiah believed that about God. And so, what do we do when we don't know what to do? We sit down and we weep for those who we know have lost someone. Those who are experiencing some kind of horrific things in their lives. Whenever we receive devastating news, we do what Nehemiah did. We sit down and we take a moment and we weep for them because we're human beings. And the second thing is you kneel down and you pray and you intercede for those, whoever it is. You believe that God hears your prayers. As a child of God, you believe God hears your cries because he does. His word tells us so. You kneel down and you pray and you plead for God's mercy and you don't just throw up a Hail Mary, a one and done and go about your life. You spend time alone with God and you ask him for his help. And the third thing is we always want to do this when we go into a time of prayer with God. We want to acknowledge our sin and repent of that. We, repenting is, is turning away from our sin, saying, God, I was doing, thing, doing things and I was living in a way that's not pleasing to you. It, it doesn't bring honor to you. It doesn't bring glory to your name, but I'm turning from them, God. I'm repenting of it. I'm acknowledging it before you and I'm turning from it because I want you to use me, God. 
And I want you to hear my prayers. It is an, uh, an important aspect of the Christian life to acknowledge our sin before God and know that He is so graciously given His Son for us who, who died on our behalf and, and died for our sins. And we know every time we go to God in prayer and ask for His forgiveness and turn from our sin, He forgives us. And He renews us. And He restores us. The fourth response. We trust in the faithfulness of our God. We believe what God says to be true in His Word. And we trust in His promises that He has already made us. So when things happen in our world, whether they're personal or not, we know and we trust in the sovereignty of God and His steadfast love for all of us, for His church. He's not forgotten us. God has not forgotten us. When tragedy strikes, God sees it. When your life feels like it's out of control and you receive that diagnosis or you receive that phone call and and your life takes a turn for the worse, God sees it. He hasn't abandoned you. He will never abandon us. We're His people, His chosen people. He sent His Son into the world to die for us, His church. So we trust in the faithfulness of our God and the power of his word. Look at Job's life. Job, this Old Testament character. You know, there's, Job's a long book. <laughs> but in the first two chapters of Job, his whole life is just taken from him. He loses his house, his family, his wealth, his cattle. Job was a wealthy man. He had a big family, lost it all. God was proving a point. He removed his covering over Job's life and everything was taken from Job. Not only that, but the enemy came in and even caused some horrific things to happen to Job physically. Job had endured the most horrific things. I don't think there's a human being on the planet in human history who experienced such trouble and trials the way Job did. Yet through and look what the Bible says about Job. In Job 1, verse 1, it says, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, yet his whole life was taken from him. This man experienced more trials than I think anyone in human history. God removed his covering of this faithful servant. And he shows us in his word that despite trials, despite loss, despite devastating, gut-wrenching news, whether personal or not. Look what Job says. Job went through a lot. Look what he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. So take heart. Next time you're in a place where you're not sure what to do, when your heart is broken, devastating things are occurring in your world. You feel like things are turning upside down. Believe in the sovereignty of God and trust in His Word. And know that at the end of it all, our Lord will stand upon the earth sovereign over all and Lord over all. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You're a faithful God who does not abandon His people in times of trouble. God, your word says that you will be with us always until the end of the age. 
Let, it, let that be so in our lives this morning, God. Despite whatever we encounter in this world, whether personal or not. Father, let us remember that it's okay to spend time grieving. It's okay to spend time mourning. It's okay to weep for the things that hurt the most. But God, let us also be reminded that that is a time to plead with you and to come to you in prayer and ask for your help. So Father, we thank you that you are a God who is willing to do that. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.